I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Vet Sessions. I'm your host, Dr. Shannon Gowland, and today I'm so excited to welcome back Dr. Erin Phillips. Hi, Erin. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming back. And today we are going to talk about a whole bunch of things to do with the liver. We're going to talk about biliary tract anatomy, diseases, and bile acid testing, which are a fantastic topic. We get so many questions from the students about this. Yes, it's uh, one of my favorite things to talk about other than proteinuria. Of course, of course. So I was thinking that maybe before we leap into our topic, um, last time we kind of talked about your career path to become an internist, but I know that you have an exciting new project going on. So I thought maybe you could chat with us just a little bit about that. For sure. Um, So after I finished my internal medicine residency, I actually had the opportunity to do a PhD in population medicine um, with my previous advisor. Uh, Shauna Blois, as well as Jason Coe. Uh, so that's what I'm doing right now. My PhD is about veterinary communication and education. So two things that are very special to me. And our research project is looking at the talking physical exam. So, you know, when veterinarians or even student veterinarians are doing their physical exam, how are they communicating the findings to the clients? And then does that have an impact on, you know, the client's satisfaction, things like that? So that's what we're going to be looking into. Fantastic. That is so interesting. Okay, well, good luck with that. And I look forward to talking to you more about that maybe in the future. So amazing. Yes. yes. Okay, let's jump into our topic. So, um, Let's start by kind of reviewing the anatomy of the biliary system, just so everybody's kind of on the same page. Sure. So I like to think of the biliary system as a big upside down tree. So the bile is going to be flowing from the top of the tree in the little tiniest branches all the way down to the trunk of the tree. So the system starts with the bile canaliculi, which are the tiniest branches of your tree. The canaliculi are little channels that form between two rows of hepatocytes, and these channels contain bile that are excreted by the hepatocytes. And the bile will flow through the liver into larger and larger channels, which are kind of like the larger branches of your tree. They'll eventually drain into the large left and right hepatic ducts, the left draining bile from the left side of the liver and the right from the right side of the liver. The two ducts then come together to drain into the common hepatic duct, which is the trunk of your tree. The gallbladder connects to the common hepatic duct through the cystic duct, and when the cystic duct and the hepatic duct connect together, the remainder of the biliary tract is what we term the common bile duct. The common bile duct then ends at the duodenum where it deposits bile into the intestines. And there's a sphincter of OD that's basically this muscular valve at the end of the common bile duct. And when it opens, it allows bile to flow into the duodenum. And then when it closes, it will stop. Okay, amazing. I really like that analogy of the tree. And yeah, that makes it a lot more clear in my mind too. So thank you for that. So what about, is there a difference in the anatomy of the biliary system in the dog and the cat? Cats usually do things differently. So yes, they do. And yes, there is. So the main difference between the biliary anatomy of the dog and cat is where it connects to the duodenum. So in the dog, the common bile duct opens into the duodenum and right beside it, the pancreatic duct also opens into the duodenum. So there are two separate ducts entering the duodenum side by side. 
The area where these two openings are found is called the major duodenal papilla. And it looks like a little white bump on the wall of the duodenum when you're doing an ultrasound. Dogs also have a second pancreatic duct that opens a little further down in the duodenum. And the area where that connects to the duodenum is called the minor duodenal papilla. So the dogs have their major and minor duodenal papilla. In the cats, it's a little different. The common bile duct and the pancreatic duct merge together before they reach the duodenum. So there's, there's one common opening into the duodenum. That's why cats with pancreatitis can more easily obstruct their common bile duct when there's inflammation in that area because they only have one opening in comparison to dogs that have the two openings. Also, only about 20% of cats have a second pancreatic duct. So that's why sometimes the major duodenal papilla is just called the duodenal papilla in a cat because they only have one of them. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that. As usual, cats doing things differently. So what if we back up a little bit and talk about what exactly is bile? Yeah, I think it's a good question because, you know, you think, oh, I know what bile is. And then when someone actually asks you to describe what it is, you don't always know. So bile is a mixture of water, electrolytes, bile acids, bilirubin, cholesterol, and phospholipids. And the most important component of bile are the bile acids. So these are the guys that are going to help us digest and absorb fat in our intestines. So how are these bile acids made then? So in the hepatocytes, uh, cholesterol, which is coming from your GI tract, is converted into primary bile acids. When the primary bile acids become conjugated, it means they combine with taurine or glycine. So when you conjugate a bile acid, it makes it more hydrophilic, a better emulsifier, and less permeable to cell membranes so that it will stay in the bile. So these are all things that we want. So basically, conjugation is making the bile acids better. Another name for a conjugated bile acid is a bile salt, um, which it took me a while to figure this out, but those are the same thing. So if you see it written somewhere, um, you know, it's a conjugated bile acid, and then sometimes they say a bile salt, those two mean the same thing. Okay, okay, good to know. Thank you. So then what happens to the bile acids once they enter the duodenum? Yeah, so bile acids within the bile are transported through the common bile duct into the duodenum. And once they get into the duodenum, then they're going to start emulsifying large fat droplets, so basically making them into smaller droplets. And that makes it easier for our pancreatic lipase enzyme to digest them. Uh, then the bile acids are going to surround those little fatty acids to form a mycele, and that helps them be absorbed into the intestines. The bile acids are then going to travel along the small intestine, continuing to help with fat digestion and absorption until they reach the ileum. Then about 90% of the bile acids will be reabsorbed through your ileum into your portal vein system, so basically the blood system that's draining blood from your intestines towards the liver. Okay. When the bile acids are in the liver, then the hepatocytes will reabsorb bile acids from the portal blood stream. So they're going to take them out of the blood and they're going to spit them back into your bile. And then they're going to go back into your intestines. So you're actually recycling most of your bile acids to be used again. This means that your hepatocytes really should be reabsorbing most of the bile acids from your intestinal blood before your blood reaches your circulation, meaning you should normally have little to no bile acids hanging around in your blood. That is so cool. I like that. Yes. <laughs> it really is. Okay, so then what liver diseases can cause your bile acids to be increased? Okay, so there are three main liver conditions that I think of um, when thinking about, you know, why my patient has increased bile acids. Okay. So 
the first one is you have shunting of blood flow into your liver. So when you have a liver shunt, an abnormal blood vessel is going to reroute blood, you know, basically away from your portal vein blood. And so it's not going to have that chance to interact with the hepatocyte. So the blood is going to go directly back into your circulation rather than to the liver. By avoiding that interaction with the hepatocytes, the bile acids that have you know, come from your ileum can't be reabsorbed um, from your bloodstream. So your bile acid level in your circulation is going to be very high. Right. Okay. The next one is cholestasis, and cholestasis is a term for when you have slower flow of bile or even obstruction of your bile flow out of your liver. So in this situation, your hepatocytes will continue making bile and bile acids, even if there's an obstruction. So they'll keep putting bile into those canaliculi, but there's nowhere for that bile to go, or it's going to be slowly moving. So your bile canaliculi are going to get more and more full of bile. Eventually, there's kind of more pressure on your hepatocytes, and your bile acids are going to start leaking from your biliary tract, kind of around through your hepatocytes and back into your portal vein blood. And then the bile acids are going to be kind of carried away back into circulation. Okay. So you're you're also going to have high um, blood bile acid levels. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> and then the last one is if you have a disease of your hepatocytes, like such as you know chronic hepatitis, inflammation, infection in your liver cells. This is because the hepatocytes, if they're diseased or damaged or have scar tissue in them, they're not going to be as good at reabsorbing bile acids from your portal vein as they would if they were healthy. So more of those bile acids are going to hang around in your blood and then go into your circulation. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So the three main things to think about when you have elevated bile acids are a liver shunt, cholestasis, which means the kind of slowdown of the flow of bile through the liver, or potentially uh, liver disease like chronic hepatitis. Exactly. Okay, great. Thank you. And then what about how do we perform bile acid testing? Yeah, so I, I think this is an important thing to go through because sometimes, you know, you assume you know how to do it, but then when you get into practice, especially as a, you know, a newly graduated veterinarian, it's something that you just want to know how to do and not have to worry about trying to look it up, uh, you know, at the last minute. Right. So the nice thing about bile acid testing is the protocol is similar for dogs and cats. So the first thing you're going to do is take a, a serum sample on a fasted patient. So you should be, say, about a 12-hour fast or at least collect before they're going to have a routine meal. Okay. There is some debate about whether you truly need to fast your patients or not, um, but the typical protocol that you'll see people use is having them fasted. So typically, I just say that's the easiest thing to do. Sure. The first sample is then going to be what we call your pre-sample. Uh, so you have a pre and a post-sample, so this one's going to be your pre-sample. Lipemia can falsely increase your bile acids and hemolysis can falsely decrease your bile acids. So making sure your patient isn't lipemic on your pre-sample is another good reason why you want want to fast your patients. Sure. So then you want to feed a small meal and usually canned food is fine. And the idea is we're trying to get our patients' gallbladders to contract and release bile and bile acids into their intestines when they eat. I will tell you that most times patients do not want to eat in hospital for their bile acid <laughs> tests. Not sure why, but they, they know we want them to do it, so, so they're not going to do it. Even if they've been fasted and you're offering them the tastiest AD canned food, they, they don't want to eat. Right. The good news is that they only need to eat a very small amount to stimulate their gallbladder to contract. So really just a few tablespoons is fine. They don't have to eat a big meal. Okay. So even if they eat a small amount, that's still okay. And then you're going to wait two hours and you're going to take your second serum sample and this is going to be your post sample. 
So when interpreting our test results, we expect to see an increase in bile acids in the blood when we take our post-sample in comparison to our pre-sample because our patients have eaten and their bile, you know, their gallbladders have contracted and then there should be more bile and bile acids in our intestines. So usually the second sample will have the highest value. That being said, sometimes our pre-sample has the higher bile acid reading, and that is okay if that happens. This can happen if our patient had a gallbladder contraction earlier than expected, like maybe they smelled their owner's breakfast sandwich while they were on the drive over to the clinic. <laughs> um, the main thing we want to pay attention to is whatever number is the highest, so it doesn't really matter that much if it's pre or post. A rough guideline is that patients with a bile acid level less than uh, 25 nanomoles per liter are considered to be normal or unlikely to have liver disease or shunting. Animals with a shunt will typically have very high bile acids, like over 100, whereas patients with liver disease like chronic hepatitis you know, might have more like moderately elevated bile acids. Obviously, it can vary for each individual patient, but just to give you a rough guideline on how high bile acids you're looking for. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. It's nice to have kind of the different categories to more direct our, our suspicions mm -hmm. for sure. So that's really useful. So are there other scenarios that can cause a patient's bile acids to be increased? Yeah. So I like to remember six reasons uh, that a patient's bile acids can be increased. So we already talked about the first three, which are liver shunt, cholestasis, and injury to your hepatocytes. But I also think of three non-liver reasons why bile acids could be increased. So one of them is ileus. So if you have ileus, meaning slower movement of ingesta through your intestines, then contents within your intestines have more time to interact with the intestinal wall. Um, so if that's kind of occurring around your ileum, more bile acids could be transported through your ileum and into your portal circulation. So potentially if you have some intestinal disease, it, it could affect your bile acids. Okay. The other one, which is interesting, and I don't think um, a lot of people have heard of, but is treatment with ursodile. So some studies have found that healthy dogs treated with ursodile had an increase in their bile acid blood levels in comparison to before treatment. So it's thought this could be from the bile acid testing being more sensitive to detect ursodile in your bloodstream than you know other bile acids and give you a falsely high reading. Some other studies did find no difference or just a small difference in the bile acid levels in dogs before and after being treated with ursodile. So it's hard to say for sure. However, if you're worried that ursodile could be increasing your patient's bile acid levels, you could have the owner stop giving ursodile four to five days before their test. So it doesn't have to be a long time that it's out of the system um, before doing bile acid testing, just in case you're worried about any interference. And then the last one is being a Maltese breed dog. Okay. So there was a study in 1995 where they measured um, postprandial bile acid levels in 200 Maltese dogs, and about 80% of them had bile acid levels above the reference range. The only five of them later went on to be diagnosed with liver disease. So they speculated there seemed to be some substance in the blood of Maltese dogs that maybe is reacting with the bile acid test and causing these seemingly false positive uh, results. There was a more recent study that tested bile acids in Maltese dogs without shunts and found, you know, they tended to be more within the normal range. So I don't know if we can definitely say not to use bile acid testing in this breed, but once again, something to consider when interpreting your bile acid results. 
Okay. Okay. Those are great things to know for sure. Okay. So if you have like chronic GI disease causing a little slowdown of your intestinal transit time, then you might have increased bile acids. It's interesting that treatment with ursodiol could cause them to go up because ursodiol is such a common liver support um, medication. And my understanding is that it's kind of a choleratic medication that helps the bile to flow through the liver. So it's uh, it's a surprise to me <laughs> that that would increase the bile acids, honestly. I know. And, and it's interesting how often, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll see dogs that are on ursodiol getting their bile acids run and then they might be a bit elevated and it's like oh you know you know and then sometimes hard to know is it is it liver disease or ursodial but the nice thing is you know you only have to be on off of ursodial for a few days it's not like you know a month or two and you could test again so as I said we don't know I I don't want to tell you a hundred percent it will but something to consider and and maybe you know discontinue if there is any question okay that's fair to know and then of course being a Maltese that's a very interesting (laughs) thing to watch out for okay that sounds good so what if your patient has high bilirubin? Should you measure bile acids if your patient has high bilirubin? All right. I think this is an important one to remember because pretty much the answer to that question is no. You <laughs> should not measure your bile acids if you have ele- elevated bilirubin on your blood work. So obviously you can just memorize not to do that, but I think it would be good to understand why we shouldn't do this. Absolutely. So um, to do this, we have to understand the relationship between bilirubin and the liver. So there are two types of bilirubin, unconjugated bilirubin, or sometimes we call that free bilirubin and conjugated bilirubin. Unconjugated bilirubin is what is produced when old red blood cells are being broken down by macrophages. And under normal circumstances, the unconjugated bilirubin is delivered to the hepatocytes. And inside the hepatocytes is an enzyme that converts them from being unconjugated to conjugated bilirubin. And then the conjugated bilirubin is put into the bile. And then that goes down into the intestines and then is excreted in the feces and the urine. Uh, there is a little bit of reabsorption of the bilirubin like we see with bile acids, but it's only about 20% um, that's reabsorbed and delivered back to the hepatocytes. So once again, you wouldn't normally have a lot of unconjugated or conjugated bilirubin in your bloodstream. So what can cause your bilirubin to increase? Once again, there are three main things. So the first one is if you have increased breakdown of red blood cells, such as what happens if your patient has IMHA. All the broken down red blood cells will overwhelm the hepatocytes and they won't be able to convert all of the unconjugated bilirubin from those red blood cells being broken down over to conjugated bilirubin. So then the unconjugated bilirubin will then hang around in the bloodstream and then when you do your patient's blood work, you're going to see high unconjugated bilirubin there with those patients. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. For the second reason, if you have slowing or blockage of bile flowing out of your liver... So similar to cholestasis. So in this case, the amount of unconjugated bilirubin being delivered to your hepatocytes is normal. And your hepatocytes can convert the unconjugated bilirubin to conjugated bilirubin without an issue. But the problem is there's no way for the conjugated bilirubin to leave the liver once it's put into the bile because the biliary system is blocked. So similar to what happens to bile acids when there's cholestasis, the unconjugated bilirubin will leak back through the biliary system into your bloodstream. And then in this case, you'd see an increase in conjugated bilirubin on your patient's blood work. And then the third scenario is if you have damaged or inflamed hepatocytes, such as we said the chronic hepatitis, bacterial infection of the liver... In this case, the amount of 
unconjugated bilirubin being delivered to your hepatocytes is the normal amount, but your hepatocytes are not working properly. So they can't convert the unconjugated to conjugated bilirubin as efficiently. Your hepatocytes can also be damaged from whatever insult they're undergoing, so they don't form as tight of a seal to prevent communication between your bile system and your portal blood system. So the conjugated bilirubin that was already in the bile will then leak back into your bloodstream. So in this case, you could see like a mixed cause of your hyperbilirubinemia, so you can see an increase in unconjugated and conjugated bilirubin on your patient's blood work. If you've ever heard of someone say prehepatic versus hepatic versus post-hepatic causes of hyperbilirubinemia, I kind of think about it the same way as our different types of azotemia, because in a way, I think the kidney and the liver are actually very similar. Um, okay. Both, you know, both of them are kind of for filtering, you know, the blood in the body and kind of, you know taking things that we need or don't need. And I also think of the ureter and the urethra kind of like the bile duct and the bladder, um, it, it, you know, and is being similar to the gallbladder. So actually, I don't know, I, I kind of think of those as being similar. That's cool. I like that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything, so anything that causes bilirubin to be increased before the blood got to the liver, that's going to be your prehepatic cause of hyperbilirubinemia. So just like dehydration could cause pre-renal azotemia. Okay. And then if the bilirubin is increased because there's something wrong within the liver itself, that is hepatic hyperbilirubinemia, just like chronic kidney disease can cause renal azotemia. And then if your bilirubin is increased because something has happened in the biliary system outside of the liver, this is post-hepatic hyperbilirubinemia. So just like if you have a ureteral or urethral obstruction, that causes post-renal azotemia. Okay. So finally, tying my bilirubin rant back into bile acids, <laughs> cholestasis and liver injury, we know are both conditions that can increase the bile acid levels in our blood. And now we just learned those are also the same conditions that can cause us to see an increase in our bilirubin levels in our blood. So if our patient has hyperbilirubinemia, especially if we're seeing other signs of liver injury, like they have high ALT, ALPGGT on our blood work, it would be redundant to also test bile acids in that patient because it really isn't going to give us any additional information and would not allow us to determine whether the bile acids, you know, were high from a shunt or something like that. So that's why if you see a high bilirubin level on your blood work, you really should not be testing bile acids. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for uh, going over that with us for sure. So, but are there any exceptions though to performing bile acid testing if your patient is hyperbilirubinemic? Like is it a hard no, never? Or is there is there one or two scenarios that you think about it? So there's only one scenario that I could think of that you might want to do bile acid testing if your patient is hyperbilirubinemic. And it's if you're wanting to decipher, is this high bilirubin because of red blood cell breakdown rather than liver disease? Okay. Yeah, that yeah. would be kind of our, our first scenario we said about having high bilirubin. That would be the only reason. And maybe you're not sure why it's increased. But uh, you would likely see other signs on your blood test, like if your patient's anemic or not, if, as you said, if the other liver values are increased, is the bilirubin unconjugated or conjugated? And those can give you hints about whether the hyperbilirubinemia is, you know, coming from red blood cell breakdown or not without needing, you know, to actually go to the bile acid testing. So that would be the only scenario. But even then, I don't know if it's, you know, hard and fast, you should, you should do it. 
Okay. Okay. So that's the one scenario where you might consider it, but probably not because you're going to have other clues. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So if we kind of go back to the bigger picture, um, what would you say is the top biliary disease in dogs that you think our students should be most familiar with um, when they're leaping into practice? Yes, I think that the most important biliary disease for dogs that you probably see in practice is a gallbladder mucosal. Yeah. So this is a big one um, that I think about, about, you know, a cause of biliary disease in a dog. And the breeds that mainly get this are going to be your older Shelties, Cocker Spaniels, Pomeranians, and Miniature Schnauzers. So a gallbladder mucosal occurs when a patient develops thickened bile and accumulation of mucus within their gallbladder. The bile forms this ball of goo within the gallbladder and it doesn't empty properly. So this causes the goo to accumulate and the gallbladder becomes bigger and bigger. The gallbladder can get so large that it starts obstructing the common bile duct and if left untreated, it can even rupture and cause leakage of bile into the abdomen. So that's what we call bile peritonitis. In some cases, these dogs may not have any you know, clinical signs and the mucosal is found incidentally. If the mucosal is farther, farther along, however, they can be quite ill with abdominal pain, vomiting, and fever. We'll typically see increases in all your liver values on your blood work if your patient has a mucosal, including hyperbilirubinemia. The way that mucoceles are typically diagnosed, though, is by ultrasound, when you're going to see this thick, bright material in the center of the gallbladder that will often be stuck to the gallbladder wall. A classic ultrasound finding is the gallbladder is going to resemble a kiwi. Which is very cool. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, very classic to see. Now, surgery to remove the gallbladder, which is also called a cholecystectomy, is required emergently. If you see this, if your patient is ill, um, or if they have progressive hyperbilirubinemia, or there's concern for you know a rupture of that obstruction of your um, bile duct. If you diagnose a gallbladder mucosal in an asymptomatic patient, so maybe you found this incidentally, surgery should still be considered and ideally before the patient has become ill. Surgery to remove a gallbladder mucosal can be risky and the risk increases depending on how unstable the patient is or if the gallbladder has ruptured. So it's fair to schedule the surgery at a time when the patient is stable rather than waiting for it to get worse. Now, medical management, so not going to surgery, is something to consider, but really more if the owner has declined surgery, you know, you've offered it and they don't want to go ahead, or if the gallbladder mucosal is in a very early stage, you know, in a, in a stable patient. And this involves treatment with ursodile and hepatoprotectins. Now, I think a couple things to consider is why do dogs develop gallbladder mucosils in the first place? Well, we don't know for sure, but we do know some conditions seem to be associated with developing a gallbladder mucosal. So these conditions are Cushing's disease, and actually one study showed uh, dogs with gallbladder mucosils were 29 times more likely to be diagnosed with Cushing's disease in comparison to healthy dogs. Wow. So I really think you should be having, you know, uh, gallbladder mucosal and Cushing's disease in your mind. Okay. And then the other ones are hypothyroidism and hyperlipidemia. And it may even be that hyperlipidemia or high fat levels in your blood, you know, could be from me having Cushing's disease or low thyroid. There's also a suspicion that gallbladder dysmotility causes the bile to not empty properly from the biliary tract, which may lead to a mucosal. So if you have a patient with a gallbladder mucosal or early signs of one, in addition to, you know, the treatments that you would do, it would be fair to, to think about testing for those commonly associated diseases like Cushing's, hypothyroidism, or hyperlipidemia in addition. Okay. 
And just to make sure to mention, gallbladder mucoceles are very rare in a cat. So this is, is pretty much a dog issue. Okay, thank you. And then you mentioned potentially considering medical management for this condition if surgery is not on the table for a patient. Do you have any concerns about using Ursodile in a dog with a gallbladder mucosal? Yes, there can be for sure. Ursodile is actually a type of bile acid called ursodeoxycholic acid. Humans, cats, and dogs normally don't have large amounts of this acid in their bile, but bears do. Ursodile is a more water-soluble bile acid than the bile acid that that can be typically found in your bile. And being a water-soluble bile acid is a good thing because it's less toxic to the cells lining the bile ducts in comparison to bile acids that are more fat-soluble. When you take ursodile, it becomes a major component of the bile acid population in your bile and actually kicks out the more toxic bile acids, which is good. It also helps reduce the amount of cholesterol in your bile and has some anti-inflammatory properties. So definitely does do you know, some good things for the liver. Ursodile also increases bile flow and causes more bile acids to be secreted into the bile. This is also called a choleretic effect, which is a good thing when you have a clear path for that extra bile being made you know, to leave the biliary system. So this is why Ursodile is sometimes prescribed if you have a patient with bile sludging. So the bile is maybe more thickened, but it's not a mucosal, and this can help make the bile, you know, a little bit, you know, thinner, flow better. So the only issue is if you have a blockage of your biliary system, then there's no place for that extra bile to go, and it can increase the risk of your gallbladder rupturing if there is a mucosal or obstruction of your bile ductus present. So if you decide to use ursodile in a patient with a gallbladder mucosal because the owner has declined surgery, it's important to warn the owner that there is a risk of causing a rupture of your gallbladder. And it would be prudent to make sure that your patient doesn't have a mucosal or biliary obstruction, such as, you know, offering an ultrasound or doing one to make sure that area looks clear before starting ursodile, you know, if you're really concerned that, that a mucosal is present. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. And so what about the top biliary diseases in cats for students to be familiar with in practice? You mentioned that gallbladder mucoceles are very rare in cats, but what do they do instead? Yeah, so I'm going to be sneaky here and I'm going to give you two cat biliary diseases for the price of one. So (laughs) so for cats, we worry about inflammatory cholangitis or inflammation of the bile duct system. So though cats don't get gallbladder mucoceles, they do still like to get disease in their biliary tract and specifically neutrophilic cholangitis and lymphocytic cholangitis. Okay. So neutrophilic cholangitis is caused by spread of bacteria from the intestines, typically, into the biliary system. And this bacteria causes, you know, inflammation and infection. And the cats will show signs like nausea, vomiting, anorexia, and fever. And it tends to come on suddenly. So they're, they're sick pretty quickly. And they may or may not be jaundiced. On your blood work, you'll often see high white blood cell count and elevated ALT. But sometimes even your liver values can be normal, d- depending on how progressed it is. Ultrasound sometimes can show edema of the gallbladder wall, um, but once again, your ultrasound could be normal. That happens. How you diagnose neutrophilic cholangitis is actually by taking a sample of bile directly from the gallbladder using ultrasound guidance. And we call this percutaneous ultrasound-guided cholecystocentesis. So it kind of sounds like 
cystocentesis when you take urine from the bladder, but you're doing it from the gallbladder. So it's cholecystocentesis. Wow. Yes. Though this seems like a scary sounding thing to do, there are multiple studies that have shown that cholecystocentesis has low risk of complications and can be formed safely in most cases. So once you get your bile sample, then you can send it off for cytology. So you're going to look to see, you know, if there's increased neutrophils or bacteria um, in your bile and then send it for culture. The culture is nice because it helps us to determine what bacteria is there and what antibiotics it's most sensitive to. The typical treatment that we use is Clavamox for about four weeks. Now, if you had an owner in practice that didn't want to go for cholecystocentesis, maybe even didn't want to go to ultrasound, but you had some you know, concerns about a liver infection or a biliary infection, then it would be fair to just treat empirically with Clavamox for four weeks. Okay. And then the other type of disease we see is lymphocytic cholangitis. So this is a condition where small lymphocytes will infiltrate the walls and the area around the small biliary ducts within the liver. We don't know specifically what causes this inflammation to develop, um, but we, we do see that it occurs. Cats tend to have more slowly progressing signs like chronic vomiting, diarrhea, polyphagia, or weight loss. So these cats, it tends to be more of a, a slow moving disease in comparison to the neutrophilic cholangitis. Interestingly, on our blood work, one of the most consistent abnormalities you'll see is elevated globulins. Okay. Yeah. So something to consider um, as a cause of high globulins in a cat other than our typical, you know, FIP differential that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, On ultrasound, you might see dilated bile ducts, but once again, some cats can have normal ultrasounds. Fine needle aspirates of the liver are unfortunately not helpful. Because the disease is so centered around the biliary tracts, it's really difficult to make sure you're actually getting a representative sample when you're doing an FNA. So that really often, you know, does not give you the diagnosis. The best way to diagnose lymphocytic cholangitis is by taking a biopsy of the liver. On the biopsy, you'll see all these small lymphocytes along the biliary tree. And because the inflammation has been going on for some time, we'll often see fibrosis or scar tissue around the bile ducts as well. The treatment of choice is, you know, in comparison to antibiotics on on our previous one, this is going to be prednisolone, so something to reduce inflammation in the liver, and ursodile. These cats, though, can also be prone to getting bacterial infections in their bile as well. You know, that liver is, you know, disease, they've got inflammation around their biliary tract. Sometimes they can get infections on top of having the lymphocytic cholangitis. Great. And yes, and may need, of course, of antibiotics as part of their treatment. So I think it's important to remember that cats can actually have neutrophilic cholangitis and maybe lymphocytic cholangitis, you know, at the same time, right? Um, And may these cats with lymphocytic cholangitis may also need samples of their bile as part of their workup. I think the other important thing is if you've diagnosed a, a cat with neutrophilic cholangitis, like in the previous scenario, once you've kind of done your treatment with your antibiotics, I think you should consider, you know, maybe should I investigate further for lymphocytic cholangitis as well, especially if their signs didn't completely resolve after the antibiotic therapy. So just to kind of keep that they may be trying to give you two, you know, conditions at the same time. Okay. Just to keep things fun and easy as cats love to do. (laughs) They are fun, but they're not always easy. So I want to ask you a little bit more about so in general practice and mm-hmm. performing performing things like liver biopsies, it sounds like uh, like uh, aspirating the gallbladder is something that's relatively something that you can consider doing in general practice. Are you sedating these cats for that, or is this something that you feel should be more of a referral with a 
potentially true cut liver biopsy? Tell me about that. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I guess I would say, you know, I, I certainly don't want to downplay the easiness of taking an ultrasound, you know, guided sample of the bile. I think one of the concerns can be, you know, if you don't drain the gallbladder enough, then you more, you know, have that chance of leakage of yeah. bile. Sometimes our uh, radiologists will like to kind of go through actually a part of the liver lobe. So it kind of helps create this seal after they take the bile. So I think it would be something where, I don't know if I would say a general practitioner would, you know, be able to feel comfortable doing this. I think it's probably something that at least even if you have like a traveling ultrasonographer that's comfortable with doing things like fine needle aspirates, um, then I think that that it is fair to try. But I don't know if you would want to do it if you didn't have some ultrasound training. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, that sounds fair. And then for your liver biopsies in the cats, are you generally doing a true cut biopsy or... Yeah, so for our, and, and, I, and I don't want to steal the thunder of potentially, you know, some other discussions on podcasts, you know, that, that may come, um, but we don't find that true cut liver biopsies are that helpful, actually, in okay. diagnosing liver disease. They are less, you know, invasive than the surgical approach, but we just find that their, their actual results that they give us are not always that helpful or that accurate. What we do at OVC is do laparoscopic, you know, guided okay. uh, liver biopsies. And that seems to be the nicest way to get that balance between being minimally invasive, but still getting good quality samples. Um, so, you know, once again, I think it'd be fair to refer either for a dog or a cat to have that done, you know, at a specialty service that can offer it laparoscopically. Or if you're somewhere that, you know, yourself or another surgeon feels comfortable doing laparoscopic surgery, I would say a laparoscopic guided um, liver biopsy would be the best way to go okay thank you and there will be some future liver podcasts uh, in (laughs) which perhaps we will discuss this a little bit more in a little bit more detail so thank you so much for going over all of this with us it can be so confusing um, doing bile acid testing when you should do it how you should interpret it Um, so I really appreciate you reviewing that with us thank you so much no problem my pleasure So I just wanted to mention that this episode of Vet Sessions is generously sponsored by OVC Pet Trust. Thank you, OVC Pet Trust. It is a charitable fund based at the University of Guelph's Ontario Veterinary College, um, and it funds groundbreaking research and discovery to improve companion animal health. Thank you for everything you do, Pet Trust. So thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We really appreciate you listening. Um, If you have any ideas for uh, future podcasts, please send us an email to vetsessions at hotmail.com, and you can also message us on Instagram at vet sessions thanks very much take care we'll see you next time